With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America. With your host, Scott Speed. Hello and welcome to Race Haven Live. My name is Dr. Scott Speed and I appreciate you being here with me. Uh, This is the third episode of a series of live shows called America We Need to Talk. And it's designed to be a dialogue where we, you and I, can learn and communicate our way towards collective solutions to the social challenges facing America. Now my goal uh, was for you and I to meet here each Wednesday at 12 noon when I started this uh, at the beginning of March. And I was successful for the first two weeks, and then life happened. And I was unable to uh, execute a live show uh, the last two weeks of the the month of March. I'll spare you the details on, on what, what, what occurred. But what I learned is that uh, my life just isn't conducive right now to uh, a scheduled show. Uh, for a variety of reasons. So what I'm going to do um, is I'm just going to announce uh, on the Facebook group uh, in the Facebook, I'm sorry, the Race Haven Facebook podcast uh, page, which is a public page anyone can get to if you just search for Race Haven podcast. So if you have Facebook, I highly suggest that you uh, like that page and therefore you will get uh, notifications when I make announcements there. So when I'm going live, on a Wednesday, uh, I'll announce it there several days beforehand. I'll also announce it on my personal page uh, if you friend me there or follow me there, or uh, and I'll also announce it in the uh, Race Haven Community Dialogue uh, Facebook group. So if you are a member there, you'll also get announcements several days beforehand. So with that being said, uh, the live show, the reason why I cre- created the live show uh, is because the live show for me is like a voice blog. Uh, it's an opportunity for me to jump on uh, to the podcast by myself and share some ideas and thoughts that are you know, rolling around in my mind that if I had time, I would actually love to actually write a blog. But unfortunately, I don't have the time to consistently do that. So instead, I'll do a voice blog. So this particular uh, you know, uh, show, uh, the live show, the <clears throat> is different from the dialogue show or the interview shows I do that I call uh, perspective shows. Uh, the live show is, is more or less you listening to me uh, share some ideas that are, you know, rolling around in my mind and some things that I want to convey. And in addition to that, uh, it's also an opportunity for you to call up. Uh, you know, I open it up for callers as well because, you know, I oftentimes I think better and I, and I can speak better when I put an idea out there and then someone uh, either challenges that idea, 
which gives me an opportunity to further clarify or drill down and, you know, provide uh, deeper thoughts to uh, help all of us understand better and help me understand my thinking a little bit better uh, by your, your questions or challenges. Also for you to give uh, diverse perspectives for the listeners. And that's always welcome here. As you've heard me say before, I'm not interested in being right. I'm just simply interested in putting my thoughts out there, thoughts that I, you know, spend a lot of time doing research to support and just musing about, thinking about in deep, deep ways um, about, you know, all in an effort uh, to, you know, realize the agenda and the ideal, one of the founding ideals of this country, which was uh, to be one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. So I like to say that, yes, I have an agenda, and that agenda is one nation indivisible. I want to speak and do the work necessary to leaving this, this, this world and this country for future generations uh, one step closer to being one nation indivisible. So if you agree with this ideal, then we have common ground. And if we have common ground, then I don't think there's anything that can prevent us from working together towards common solutions. So with that being said, to join the dialogue today, simply dial 929-477-4107 and press 1. So <clears throat> if, um, well, you know what, I want to also say this for anyone who's listening. Um, I have a storm going on right now outside uh, of my home office and if the show, if the power goes out, that's going to impact the show. And I'm going to try to jump back online using alternative methods ASAP. So if the show has a long pause, that means that I lost power uh, and I will try to reboot. Um, just give me about five minutes. And if, if I'm not back on in five minutes or so, then that you'll know what happened. Okay. The power, uh, you know, took things out, but I'm just going to try to, uh, you know, mow through it and hopefully we can get through the show with the power um, and the storm won't hurt us. So today's lineup uh, is going to be my commentary about today's topic, which was Scott addresses criticism that he caters to making white people comfortable. In addition to me giving commentary on that, uh, I will also be, you know, taking your calls and, and, and we'll build from there. So again, if you want to join a dialogue today, just dial 929-477-4107 and press one so that I know that you want to speak. You can just listen at that number. Uh, or you can press one and I'll know that you want to speak and I'll get you in uh, at some point throughout the uh, dialogue and through the, throughout the conversation. So with that being said, I'd like to start out by sharing the foundational principles of this show. Uh, the foundational principle of this show is the same as all the other Race Haven podcasts, and that's this, that dialogue is healthier than debate. Dialogue promotes mutually agreed upon solutions, which fosters a sense of camaraderie and togetherness. Dialogue leads to a functional relationships. I'm sorry, leads to functional relationships. Debate, however, leads to winners and losers, which can cause both a sense of superiority and privilege from winners and a sense of resentment and inferiority from losers. Debate leads to dysfunctional relationships. So one of the things that I push hard is dialogue. And when you hear me say that I push dialogue hard, it's not dialogue in the sense of the common way that I understood dialogue uh, before I was introduced to the actual um, 
methodologies and frameworks of, of authentic dialogue. Um, you know, I hear people in, in layman's term use dialogue when they talk about a serious conversation. Um, but when I talk about dialogue, there's actually, you know, again, there's a framework, there's tenets to it. Uh, and there's a book that informs my understanding of dialogue, the deeper understanding that I've come to gain. And that book is called Dialogue and the Art of Thinking Together. And the subtitle is A Pioneering Approach to Communicating in Business and in Life. And it's by William Isaacs. And that book really, really expanded my mind into uh, the different layers and the different uh, contexts and nuance uh, about communication and, and how I can become better at it. And ever since then, I, I've been wanting to, you know, just be a voice for that. And that's what you hear coming across uh, through this, this, this Race Haven uh, platform. Now, with that being said, again, dialogue is the foundation for the show. So let's jump right into the, today's topic. Now, I first want to say just with the title. Okay, so the title of uh, today's show is, let's see here, it's Scott addresses criticism that he caters to making white people, quote unquote, white people comfortable. So first, I want to elaborate on that because that's extremely generalized because when you're writing topics and titles for shows like this, you know, you can't really expand, uh, you don't have as much space to expand to capture people's attention, et cetera. So therefore, I have to do something that I generally despise doing, and that's speaking a generalized absolute. I despise speaking in general, generalizations like that. Uh, so let me, let me expand. First of all, um, you know, the whole idea of, quote, unquote, making white people comfortable, um, you know, that's in itself, the whole, quote, unquote, white people. I put that in quotes for a reason. One is because if you listen to the show, you know that uh, I reject the social construct of, of white people. I prefer to refer people refer to people as their name or their ethnicity and their nationality. So I refer to, uh, if, I'm, if I'm generalizing, well, let me say this, I refer to people by their name, but if I'm generalizing, I'll refer to uh, American of European descent as European American. Or if I know and I can drill down, you know, and I say a group of, you know, Italian Americans or, you know, whatever, but if generally speaking, I'll say European Americans, if I'm generalizing in that way. Um, the other reason why I put it in quotes is because, you know, not the criticism that I've gotten, as I'm, I'm about to explain, uh, is not that I'm catering to all European Americans, it's that I'm catering to uh, a segment of European Americans who have a certain ideal, um, who, who, who have certain ideals, um, or who, you know, espouse certain, you know, ideals that fall in line with a certain uh, political um, framework. So that framework in general throughout the history of the Race Haven uh, Facebook group has been individuals who, uh, who speak in terms of being uh, individuals. Uh, that's, the best, that's really the best way to say it. And I, re I remember when I first started the group, um, or let me, let, me, let me clarify that more, individuals versus you know, uh, you know, the group, you know, individual responsibility is the best way to say it. individuals who espouse the belief that individual responsibility um, plays a role in a lot of the social ills that we see in the world, as opposed to uh, those people who are like myself, who see and speak towards systems. Okay. And um, with that being said, within the Race Haven group, long before I started the podcast, I started the group about a year and a half before I started the podcast. And when I started the group, you know, I intentionally went out and invited uh, ideological uh, opposites of myself and a lot of people that were joining the group. Um, you know, I, I reject uh, uh, labels, so I don't put myself into any box. But if I'm, if I'm speaking to what I know that most people 
um, identify as, then you will probably put me uh, in the box of being progressive or what some people will call liberal. Okay, I understand that that's where if people hear me speak, they, they would probably put me there, even though personally I reject that. Um, but with that being said, I intentionally went out and got people who thought differently, differently than me and asked them to be a part of the Race Haven group because I wanted Race Haven to be a, uh, a place where people from diverse you know, political, uh, ethnic, and cultural, um, and religious backgrounds could come together and communicate through dialogue to get to know one another better uh, because I believe that we all, at the foundation, we all want the same things out of life. And I feel like if we learn to communicate uh, effectively with one another, then we can work towards common solutions beyond the polarization and the things that keep us divided. So that's the whole purpose of Race Haven. And with that being said, when I went out to get these, uh, these individuals who had different ideals than me, and how do I know they had different ideals than me? Because I would see their comments on Facebook, or they would be business associates of mine, or former colleagues of mine, or, or friends of mine, um, who I would see how they, you know, the articles they post, and how they respond to the various things happening in society, and I would know they felt differently than me. So I asked them to be a part of Race Haven because I truly wanted to understand them better. I wanted to really get to the core, especially those who were my friends. And what ended up happening is there would be a bunch of heated, you know, dialogues going on within the group. And because the group was overwhelmingly uh, individuals who pretty much shared my my ideals, generally speaking, um, whenever there would be someone who would speak up from a, a, a differing uh, ideal, idealistic, uh, you know, background. And let's just use the, the example of someone who believed that individual responsibility was, was the reason for, you know, all the social ills that, you know, ethnic minorities like African-Americans, for example, were up against and facing. So when an African-American like myself would, you know, post an issue, uh, you know, and then one of these idealistic opposites of mine would come back and say, well, you know, it has nothing to do with you know, all police or the system of policing or whatever. It's all about that individual and that choice that individual made. And what ended up happening, there were certain people who shared my idealistic background who would, you know, you know, shoot back one at those, at the very small minority of people in the group who spoke out, who were differing in their ideals. And it felt like those people were, were being attacked because it was just so many against them because they were the minority in the group. So for um, what ended up happening is I would step up and I would, you know, um, try to uh, foster more understanding and more space for those people who had that individual responsibility ideal and try to get the other members in the group to respect that person or those people's, um, you know, right to share the ideals and, and not to totally dismiss it because I believe that everyone's, um, you know, everyone's feelings are valid. You know, when you're coming to the table and you're trying to discuss solutions about something, you truly all have the same uh, goal. Just because you come from different perspectives doesn't mean that one or the other is wrong. Again, that's my, my thoughts based on my understanding of dialogue and based on how I've bought into dialogue because I believe in it as a solution. So with that being said, what I try to get people to do is not just shut down people who think differently than them, not just label them and dismiss them. You know, and I've seen that happen both ways. I've seen people get labeled liberals and be dismissed. I've seen people get labeled conservatives and get dismissed. And it's like, oh, that's just them. And what I try to foster through dialogue is that we listen to one another so that we can get to the underlying, you know, uh, thoughts and feelings and beliefs and fears and concerns that inform the various perspectives. And 
with all that being said, I had a couple of people eventually step up to me, uh, whether it be inbox or within the particular uh, thread and say, you know, in some, one way, one form or another, it was that I was taking up for uh, or catering to uh, their, their privilege um, or, you know, this end of these individuals who were in the minority in terms of their ideals. And you know, I was catering to that. And why was I giving that life? Why was I giving why was I giving those ideals life? Because those ideals are hurtful to so many people. Uh, if these people can't see, you know, that these systems uh, and, and these uh, the systemic racism and, you know, the, the criminal justice system and, you know, the historical, um, you know, all the historical things that, you know, have put us in the position that we are right now in terms of our uh, so, so many of the divides and some of the people who were, I guess we would say leaning it, uh, towards my ideals of being able to see the systems and speak to the systems and identify and accept that those are real, just didn't understand why I was giving life and giving voice to these other ideals. And there was some pushback. So, and at one point I, I, I was criticized, you know, and, and I'll just, I'll just be honest for me, I internal, no one actually said it, but I internalized it at times as people saying, well, Scott, you're an uncle Tom. Um, you know, it was cause when I hear people talking about, uh, Uncle Toms or Coons, African-American people, uh, primarily, I hear them speaking about, you know, Uncle Toms, people who cater to uh, European-Americans intentionally to make them feel good or to justify them, uh, European-Americans, generally speaking, to justify, you know, uh, their, I guess, uh, you know, white supremacism indoctrination um, or their, you know, their, their, their quote unquote white privilege, et cetera, just to use those terms, because I know a lot of people understand these terms now because they're being used uh, so often. And, you know, I internalized that. Uh, I won't say I internalized it, but I heard it as, uh, well, Scott, you're acting like an Uncle Tom or Scott, you're, you're acting like a coon. And I actually asked one of my one of my good friends um, if he felt that way, you know, because he engages in a group and in the podcast and he, you know, he said no. Um, and, but, you know, and through him and I discussing it, you know, both he and I agreed that we understood why people would say that. And then, of course, you know, I spoke to the reasons why, you know, I took the approach I took and uh, in terms of taking up for giving those people space. And I'm going to explain in more detail here in a second. I'm just trying to provide a little uh, background. And then more recently within a group. Uh, after the last podcast that I posted with both John and I, where uh, the, top, the top topic of that show, episode 29, was that John uh, explains why he finds white fragility, the concept of white fragility, excuse me, white fragility uh, offensive. So we've, in the last, you know, several days since I posted that show, we've had one of the most liveliest and in-depth dialogues in the uh, Race Haven Community Dialogue Group. Uh, after that show. And it's been really, really positive, if, if you ask me, um, as we all kind of unpacked our thoughts and feelings. Uh, but within that thread, I received a question. And the question was this, um, Scott, on the, on the podcast, you call yourself a white supremacist. I understood what you meant in that, in that, and being socialized in a white supremacist society, we all internalize it in our own ways, regardless of our so-called race. I'm wondering if perhaps internalized white supremacy is perhaps playing a role at some subconscious level in your willingness slash desire to accommodate John and others who think like him. And the influence of white supremacy makes it seem like this is a middle ground rather than something else. So let me just add context to that question. So at the end of the last podcast, I explained that um, I believe that all Americans are 
white supremacists. And what I mean by that is this. It's a spectrum, okay? There's a low end of the spectrum, and there's the extreme end, okay? And on the, let's call it the low end um, of the spectrum, there's people who have been awakened to all of the social indoctrination that we all have grown up under, okay? We were all born into a white supremacist uh, society. And what I mean by that, I know that some people believe were, were raised to believe that white supremacists were only the extreme. White supremacists were those people who wore white hoods and, 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 and were the KKK members or people who were neo-Nazis or people who were just overtly racist. We, even me, I grew up, to, I grew up understanding white supremacists as being that. However, through my education and through me learning and researching and understanding these social uh, constructs better, I now understand white supremacist, excuse me, white supremacism to be a system. It is a system. And it is the system that we literally Americans have been born into, raised up in, and indoctrinated in. And what that looks like is really simple. The founding members of this country literally uh, were European American men, and they built this country in their image. And not only did they build this country in their image based on their values and their beliefs and, and based on their goals and the outcomes they wanted, but they did so under the guise that Europeans were superior to other ethnicities, okay? There's something called scientific racism that you can look up where European um, anthropologists came up with the concept that European people uh, were superior, based on several factors. Again, if you Google uh, scientific racism, you'll understand in detail what that means. And based on those ideals, you know, white supremacism was the idea that the founding, founding fathers and the initial settlers of this country could come to this country and claim land and quote unquote discover land that other people already lived on and then go out and kill people in mass and claim ownership of land, those natives that were here already, if they didn't buy in to the Europeans' religion and the Europeans' customs, their clothes, their way of organizing and living, they were considered savages. So it was this sense of superiority that this country was founded upon. And it was, you know, pushed upon other other humans of, of other ethnicities, whether it be the natives of this land, this North American continent. And then in addition to that, it was the enslaved Africans that were bought over here for free labor. The enslaved Africans weren't even considered human beings. It's the reason why the founding fathers could put into the constitution that all men are created equal while at the same time owning humans. This is the hypocrisy that this country was founded upon. This is what white supremacism is. And I can give a number of examples, but this is what got the ball rolling for a system called white supremacism. White supremacism was those enslaved Africans being given names, not being able to keep their own African names, but being given European names. That's white supremacism. So I know that you know, um, you know, a lot of Americans, again, because because of white supremacism, we we grew up not learning these things in the way I'm explaining them. We grew up learning them in a way that sugarcoated it so that we would just fall in line with the social constructs so everyone could go along honky dory. 
and, you know, just kind of conform, right? So that's where a lot of the rub is. That's where a lot of the conflict comes in. And so when you hear me say white supremacism, that's what I mean. So I had to give that background because I know that a lot of people don't think of it that way. So when I say there's a spectrum of white supremacism, what that means is that, you know, wherever you fall on this spectrum based on your uh, historical understanding of the things I just explained and your decision to reject those social constructs, a, a, so, a, a conscious, you know, decision to reject them or be conscious and aware, or some people call woke, right? Then you're on the left, more like the, the beginning of the spectrum. And then, uh, you know, in the middle of the spectrum, I would say are people who are just un totally unaware of everything I just explained, totally apathetic to race relations, totally apathetic to systemic racism, and just kind of just live their life. No matter their ethnicity, I know people of all ethnicities that don't jump into this arena and have these type of discussions or want to think about these things because they're complex and they're heavy, and they'd rather just kind of go along with the flow and work make their money, save some money, and just do the best they can, right? They're towards the middle. They're apathetic. Then you have, and then you also have those people who are just unaware, right? There's people who are t literally unaware. European-American people especially are unaware of white supremacism, unaware of, quote-unquote, the fallout of white supremacism. And one of those things is a concept called white privilege, right, that just speaks to all the different ways that European-Americans have been socialized to be the default. European-Americans have been socialized to not deal with some of the things that other ethnic minorities have to deal with socially because that's the way this country was designed. So that's what sociologists coined the term called white privilege, right? And then you have, so those people fall somewhere in the middle. They're just, they just don't know what they don't know because they don't have to know it, right? You just don't, they don't have to. They've been protected. Society was set up in a way to protect them from it, okay? So they can be willfully, what some people call willfully ignorant, and that's what, you know, some people are. And then you have, you know, if you go further up the spectrum, you have those overt white supremacists, which are the KKK, those people who say, yes, I don't like, you know, ethnic minorities. I don't like African-Americans. I don't like Mexicans. I hate them, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's a spectrum. So when you hear me say that, Scott, I, I am a white supremacist, it's because I am understanding the system of white supremacy that I was born into it. So, of course, I just adopted, like, and all of you listening have, whether you know it or not, we all have adopted certain beliefs and ideals and thought processes, et cetera, uh, that were founded upon the concept of white supremacism. So that's what I mentioned at the end of last show, and that's what this individual was talking about. And basically, she asked if I, because I am, you know, indoctrinated and socialized as a white supremacist, if that forces me to side, quote unquote, side with John's point of view on some level. So again, I heard this as, Scott, you're just trying to make these people who share, a, like John, who's a European American male, and his ideological peers, you're just trying to make them comfortable. And I've heard that theme several times throughout my experience with the show, okay? And I gave you two example, examples, but several times in my experience with the group and through the show, and the same person who asked this question this time, uh, this person asked it another time in another form, and it was, again, along the lines of, Scott, it seems like you're just trying to make specifically European-American people who have the ideal that a lot of people would, would, would say are, um, again, individual responsibility, uh, people who are unaware 
of the concepts of white privilege, uh, people who are unaware of their social indoctrination about white, of, of white supremacism, excuse me, white supremacism, et cetera, that segment of European Americans that, Scott, you're trying to make them comfortable, because as we know, there is a large segment of European Americans who are very aware and very conscious and very woke, right? So just that particular segment. So that's what, I, what, what was brought to me, and that's what I wanted to address. And the backdrop of that, uh, I've, I've actually been wanting to talk about this for a long time, but the, um, you know, after last show with John's pushback at the term of uh, white fragility, it came up again. So I decided to take this opportunity, this show, uh, to, to really address it. And here's what I want to talk about, and here's how I want to do it. So I want to give the example. Well, first, let me say this. No, no, I don't cater to making anyone comfortable. I don't cater to making anyone comfortable because the way I view that question, let me, the way I view that, I view that question is that's the us versus them question. I view that question as being coming from the, the, the social construct of there's a right way to be in terms of race relation discussions and there's a wrong way to be. There's a right answer, there's a wrong answer, okay? And I don't operate in that space. So I personally, um, you know, I have intentionally opted out. I've opted out of that system of thinking. I've opted out of, or let me say this, the system of white supremacism has conditioned us to be divisive long before any of us were born. Long before any of us were born, this was put into motion. This is a man-made social construct. White supremacism is a man-made social construct. And within this man-made social construct, there are all these feedback loops and all of these um, you know, various subsystems that have been instituted into society that instantly can divide us if we're not conscious and aware of it. In addition to that, and it goes, it's even deeper than that. It's in our politics. It's through, it's through our religion in so many ways. In so many ways, we've been socialized in a debate-based society where it's us versus them, winners and losers, okay? And what I've done at a conscious level is reject all of that. You, we've been conditioned to think in a lot of instances, some of, many of us, not all, but European Americans and African Americans are at odds. Christians and Muslims, generally speaking, at odds. Republicans and Democratic, Democrats, you know, people who share those different ideals, conservatives, liberals, at odds. That's just the fabric of this country. That's just the way things were set up long before any of us were born. But here's what I challenge everyone to think for themselves to think about. Why do we have to accept that? I created Race Haven specifically specifically as a space, as a platform, as a place for us to reject those things, for us to get rid of those labels and come to the table as just humans one another, get to know our underlying beliefs and thoughts and histories and, you know, cultures and fears and concerns and goals. And if we all can come to the table with a common ground, and that common ground being that we want to unite and that we want to leave this country 
and in, in, in this space better for the next generations than it is now, then we have common ground. If we believe in the ideal that we want to be one nation indivisible, then we have common ground. If we believe that all those other divisive things are in the way of true human connection and that we want to work towards that, then we have common ground. All we have to do now is do the hard work of abandoning all of our social conditioning and indoctrination of the, in the ways that we were, we were conditioned to be divided long before we were born and come to the table and start creating a new language, start creating new ideals, start creating a new social construct. Now, that's the hard part. So let me give you an example, because I know that a lot of people don't necessarily see that, necessarily see that this is systemic. It's not about the people. Uh, it's about the system. And I am, for, you know, because I know a lot of you have heard this before, but some people may be listening for the first time, so I'll, I have to say these things over and over. But, uh, you know, I was introduced to a concept called systems thinking through my doctoral studies that totally changed the way I look at everything. It has totally changed the way I look at everything. I no longer see just events. I no longer just see just people. I see the system. I see the, the, the excuse me, I see the design of the system as being uh, responsible for the results, as being responsible for the outcomes. And I'm going to give you an example of that in a second. Another way of saying it, saying it is this. I no longer just see trees. I can see the forest. I see a 10,000-foot view of the issues. I no longer am stuck in the issue trying to solve it at the ground level. Because I've been trained and I've consciously sought out to understand systems thinking better, and I'm still literally doing that, I see things differently. It's not, these aren't just thoughts and ideas that I came up with out, of, out the blue. No, this comes from my studies of dialogue and my studies of systems thinking as a theory. And I'll share some links in the uh, show notes for anyone who's interested in learning more. But let me give you an example I think everyone can relate to. And then I'm going to open it up for callers. Again, if you want to jump in, please dial 929-477-4107 and press 1, and I'll know that you want to speak. So let me give you an example of what I mean about systems and how it impacts all of this. So most, most Americans, um, and literally most people in, in most developed countries, uh, grew up going to uh, public school, okay? They grew up going to public school, and even if it wasn't public school, it was a private school, and they still pretty much have the same type of system where, you know, you have different grade levels, you have a concept like kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, et cetera, and based on your age determines what grade you're in. And when you're in that grade, you have something that someone or a group of people came up with as a, these skills. And they said that if you don't learn these skills, I'm sorry, or let's say it like this, uh, these are the skills you have to learn within this calendar school, this school year calendar. And throughout the year, we're going to teach you these skills. We're going to drill, it, drill these skills, and you have to memorize all these facts and, and various things. And there'll be tests and quizzes along the way, quizzes along the way. And some of you will pass and some of you will fail. And those people will get A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's, right? If you get an A, you know, B, A, or whatever, C, B, A, you're, you're you know, a, a winner. And if you get an F, you're a failure, right? You're a success if you get good grades, you're a failure if you get bad grades on these tests. And then at the end of the end of the year, if you did really good and you had a passing, you know, average, then you can move on to the next grade. 
And within this, you had certain subjects that someone decided were the subjects or a group of people decided, you know what, these are going to be the subjects that school will be based around, right? They chose a core group of subjects, primarily around math, reading, and writing, and, you know, math, reading, and writing. And, you know, someone said, you know, these are the skills that everyone needs. And if people get these skills, uh, you know, that's what success looks like. And if you get A's and B's, you're a success. And if you get F's, you're a failure, right? And then some people got left back, et cetera, et cetera. But you had winners, you had losers. You had winners, you had losers. You had failures, you had successes. That's generally, oh, and you also had an authoritarian model where kids had to sit at desks and raise their hand to ask questions, and they couldn't talk to the person next to them, or they couldn't, you know, uh, collaborate on tests because that was considered cheating. And you had 45-minute to 50-minute blocks of class, and during those blocks of class, when a bell rang, you moved to the next class, or you moved on to the next subject, and everything was lined up. Everything was systemized. Everything was systemic, right? And it was lined up perfectly, and, you know, there were people who just thrived and excelled within this model. Now, that's what most people understand education to be. That's what most people understand education. Um, that's what most people believe is normal in terms of education. A lot of people, in my experience, don't even think about the fact that that's a social construct. They don't think about the fact that a group of people got together and created that years ago. And they don't think about the fact that there could be other ways of doing it. They have just been, been socialized and conditioned to thinking that this is just the way it is. That's how most of us, including me, grew up thinking about this whole model of education. Now, that's the system. That's, that's just what it is. It's a system. A little over 100 years ago by the name of Maria Montessori. And Maria Montessori, she rejected that system. She went, went and created a totally different model. She created a model that didn't include grades grade levels. There is no kindergarten, first, second, third grade, where batches of kids based on their age moved along and learned the same things at the same time in the same way. And they moved along every year to the next grade together until they graduate. Maria Montessori groups children and based on an age range of three, three years. So in a Montessori classroom, You'll see children ages three, four, and five together in a group. You'll see children ages six, seven, eight, nine together in a group. There's in, in a class. There's no grade levels. There's no standardized curriculum. There's no there's no tests. There's no failures. There's no way to get an F. No way to get an F. There's just learning based on where that child is. Yes. There's foundational principles. Yes, there are foundational skills that are introduced to the learners. However, there is no imaginary timeline that says that a kid has to learn something by a certain time. The children are simply introduced to these concepts, and they learn them in the best way that's suited for them as individuals. And when they master the concept, they move to the next concept. In that particular system, there is no right or wrong. It's based on the individual. It meets the child where they are. And that particular concept in a, group of, in a class with a group of students ages 6, 7, 8, and 9, a lot of the times the students are teaching and helping and collaborating with one another. 
And that's not called cheating. It just doesn't exist in that, in that space. It's called collaboration. It's called working together. The older learners, a lot of times, are teaching the young, younger learners. The older learners are able to be leaders. The young, younger learners are able to learn how to follow. The older ones are able to learn how to lead. There's so many other social dynamics that happen within this model that Maria Montessori set up. She wanted children to she I'm sorry, she observed that children learn using their hands and kinesthetically uh, a lot uh, more effectively. So she created all these tools, et cetera, et cetera. So guess what that is? That is a totally different framework. That is a totally different system. So the reason why I shared that is because there's still a lot of Amer- a lot of Americans, a lot of people in general that have no idea that Montessori even exists. It's more prevalent today, but when I was growing up, I didn't know what Montessori was, but it's been around for over 100 plus years, right? Because it's not in the mainstream. And even today, there's people that don't understand the tenets and the, and the, the foundational structures and et cetera of Montessori in terms of this traditional way. Now, there's all different forms and different variations of it today, but in its truest form, it's, you know, I shared some of the, 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 the foundational tenets of it. And with that being said, it's an entirely different way of thinking. It's an entirely different framework. So when someone comes to me and says, Scott, you know, you are catering to making certain people comfortable, this is what I hear. This is what I hear. And this is not necessarily, uh, well, I'll just, this is, I'll just leave it at that. This is what I hear. People who share our ideals, people who understand that systemic racism is a thing, we are typically in, objection, in, in opposition to those people who believe that individual responsibility is the key to success and is the key reason why certain people don't thrive in American society. So when people come with that, it is our job to oppose them, to reject them, to debate them, to show them that we're right. That's the way we've all been socialized. That's like traditional education. We've all been socialized in the space of right and wrong, A's and F's. The majority of us, I'm sorry, the majority of us have been socialized through traditional education, whether it be public or private, and the whole idea of right and wrong, A's and F's, for the first 12 years of our educational lives. So we grew up thinking that way. But here's the problem. Here's what Montessori says. Montessori says, we are not standard as people, people and humans who are dynamic individuals who have all these different ways of learning and all these different ways of experiencing the world and processing information. We're doing a harm and we're doing a disservice by forcing them to learn the same things. When they all come from different backgrounds with different challenges and different variables every day when they wake up. So we're forcing everyone to pass a test where all the answers are the same. We're doing a disservice. And when you do a disservice in that type of right and wrong, us versus them, debate versus, you know, dialogue type thing, type of society, you end up having dysfunction. And what dysfunction looks like in a traditional education sense is that you have dropouts. You have people who are socialized into thinking they're failures, so they end up dropping out because they are tired of being told they're getting F's and being told they're a failure. And then we have those people tend to go on to be the people who become you know, wrapped up into in poverty or into the criminal system, et cetera. This has been happening for hundreds of years in America because the primary dominant force has been traditional standardized education. Either you fit in the box or you're a failure. 
But in the Montessori world, you just have children learning for the first 18 years of their lives. They just learn. And then they just pick up and say, okay, I want to do this as a profession. They've been socialized and indoctrinated as learners and empowered to be learners, to be curious. There's no teachers in Montessori. There's guides. There's guides. They simply follow the child. So when I, when I, when I contrast that with the discussion of, again, systemic thinkers in terms of being able to see systems versus individual um, you know, personal responsibility people, I see certain people on the side of, of the systems thinking side or people, not systems thinking, but the people who are able to see and understand systemic racism and understand, you know, the social, um, uh, you know, how history is unfolded in America and why things are the way they are, want to stand in opposition to the other people uh, who may have a different learning style because of the way they were raised and indoctrinated. And that's how I see it. The long and short of it is that's how I see it. The reason why I'm able to sit at the table with John and his idealistic peers the reason why I'm not only able to, but I'm, I'm excited to sit at a table and dialogue with them about the way they see the world, and I embrace their beliefs and their, and their concepts, is because I don't hold it against them. I don't see it as a right versus wrong. This person asked me if I, you know, another follow-up question was, you know, is, do I see, can someone be wrong in these discussions about race relations? And my answer to that is, if a person comes to the table and we establish common ground that there's a divide, there's something not right in our society, and I want to work towards solutions, then my answer to that is absolutely no. There's no way that that person could be wrong in anything they say. Because then all that, all that needs to occur is a level of learning. Because here's what I understand. Because of the white supremacism indoctrination that all of us, is fought, all of us have been exposed to, we've all been victims to it, but just in different ways. A segment, a large segment of European Americans who may not have been exposed to understand certain things the way uh, an ethnic minority was just born into is because they weren't given the same history lessons. When, if they weren't, you know, in certain instances, again, generalizing, they didn't grow up in families who could speak to these issues intimately, who grew up during the civil rights era or who grew up during, you know, Jim Crow and all these various things in terms of those of us who are alive today. So if they don't have... I'm sorry. And if they, and when they grew up in it, they grew up in it from a different perspective. They were indoctrinated in these things from a different perspective. They were victimized. They were hurt from a different perspective, but either way we look at it, we're all frustrated with the stress around these topics. So I say, how can we come together? <clears throat> how can we sit at the table? How can we get to know and respect each other's beliefs and understand that we've all been indoctrinated to believe the way we believe. And some of us have chose to unlearn some of the indoctrination and see things differently. And some of us have chosen not to, but for those who have chosen to, someone like myself who spent a ton of time and has invested a ton of time, I sit down with someone like John who may not have the research-based knowledge I have and the sociological understanding of these issues, but he just has an innate understanding and feeling of these issues and he's willing to come to the table and sit down with me to discuss them. If someone like that comes to the table, no. The, my belief is nothing he's saying is wrong. It's not wrong in the, in the right versus wrong, us versus them way that most people think of things. And I hope this is making sense. I'm going to open up the line in a second. So all I see there is we just need to talk and we just need to get to know each other better. And if we talk 
and we get to know each other better, then we come up with a language, we come up with common solutions and agreeable solutions that we both can agree upon, and then we move forward to the next phase. So the, exa- the final thing I'll say as an example of that is, if someone like John says, you know what, the term white fragility makes me uncomfortable because of the way he's been raised and indoctrinated and the way that term was introduced to him as something that was divisive or something that was like a, a slur to European American people, terms like white privilege and white supremacism and white fragility for a segment of Americans, if they engage in a certain segment of uh, media and they listen to certain things and they've been raised a certain way and the way these terms have been politicized, right? They, they've been politicized a certain way, then they may think that it's a slur. But what John was able to do was say this. There was an article about white fragility that we both read. And John read the article and he said, I agree with most everything that the author is sharing. It makes all the sense in the world to me. However, the term white fragility feels like a slur. So here's what I said, because I believe in dialogue. I said, you know what, John? Because you're able to read this article, even though it felt uncomfortable, and and evaluate yourself and evaluate society and realize that a lot of the points are true. However, you just can't get past the title. I'm willing to say, as in this relationship between he and I, when we talk about these issues, I won't use those terms. That's the middle ground that John and I came to. Because I understand what white fragility means. I understand what white privilege means. It makes all the sense in the world to me. I'm an African-American male who grew up in a low-income environment. I get this stuff innately, and I've done a ton of research on it intentionally. So I have a different level of awareness of the complexities. But a European-American male, because of all the things I've discussed that may have been apathetic to these things, not someone who's out here trying to do harm, but someone who's just been apathetic because it doesn't affect them, who's never taken the time to understand these things at the deep level, who comes to me and now is starting to learn and understand these things and asks me to make one simple accommodations, absolutely, every day, all day, I'm going to make that accommodation. Because this person, I'm using John as an example, has met me in the middle just by simply saying, I'm no longer going to be apathetic to these issues. I'm going to open my mind to them. I'm going to listen to you, Scott, because I know you spend a lot of time researching them. I'm going to lean on your expertise in those areas. And that's the rub. That's the thing that we discussed. And that's the thing that there's been a lot of pushback to within the group, because some people who I feel like respectfully and with all the love in the world, I feel like some people are still speaking from that position of there's a right and a wrong answer. There's people who get A's and people who get F's. Instead of speaking from a position of we all learn different, we all learn differently. We all come to the table with different learning styles based on a variety of factors. And that the guide is just their job is to meet that learner where they are and then help them grow. That's it. As long as, again, the foundation has been set, there's common ground that people are not out here trying to do harm, then that's, that's all, in my opinion, is needed. So I hope that I was able to articulate that effectively. I know that some of you are going to get it. I know that some of you aren't. I'm okay with that. A total agreement is not the goal. I just hope that maybe you'll include my perspective in your world perspective, even if you don't agree with it, and even if you don't want to adopt my perspective, I just hope that something I shared and 
the way you see this issue. So I'm going to go ahead and open up the lines. We have a few callers who want to jump in. I appreciate you for hanging on the line uh, patiently and listening. And for anyone else who wants to dial in, again, the number is 929-477-4107, and then press 1, and I'll know that you want to speak. So the first caller uh, has a last, the last four digits of your telephone number is 9534. Please state your name, share where you're calling in from, and share your perspective or ask your question. All right, so who do I have with us? Hi, this is Andrew. Hello, Hello. Andrew. Yeah, thanks for, I didn't thanks realize for I was the first one in the queue. <laughs> um, basically, you know, in a way, I kind of agree with a lot of things you're saying. Uh, I just think that there's some a little bit of wordplay and potentially um, dimensional thinking that might be potentially causing problems. So I totally agree with the whole Montessori school thing. Totally fine. I get it. Different people at different levels. Um, and I also, in a way, understand the whole path-fail scenario that you were talking about. And I agree that people look at it from that success and failure. Right. But the reality is that when you go through this very structured educational system, the grade is really telling the, uh, the pupil that they have not satisfactorily comprehended or understood the material. It, it, it's not you're a failure. It's just you may not have done the work or you may not have invested the appropriate amount of time to understand all these things. So it's just a milestone to move along the way to go from one place to the next. So it shouldn't be hyperbolically understood to be, oh, my God, I'm, I'm a success, or oh, my God, I'm a failure. You know, because that's just kind of the whole good-bad binary um, that I kind of don't like. Um, so I wanted to say something about that, you know, to just basically say we need to get ourselves out of this whole binary good-bad thinking, right? And I think we're in congruence about that, um, you know. So yeah. So, right. so so let me can I just let me ahead. say let me say one thing about what you just said and then you can add to it. And that example that you just gave, you're absolutely right. But the the one thing that I want uh, everyone to take from what you just said and the thing that I was trying to really highlight was that even when you you spoke about if someone didn't you know meet a benchmark that was set, I wanted people to take away from that that the benchmark that was set, that's a benchmark that was created by man. That, it was a that is someone totally, created it. That is it's a system that is, totally that is fine with me. Yeah, I just want totally people to get that. Me. It's just that I I agree with that, and I think everyone should understand that, right? Because, and it may not you know, work for everyone. No matter what subject you're doing, it may not work for everyone. It may not be comprehended because you know some people are left brain thinkers, some people are right brain thinkers, right, some people right. are artists, some people are scientists, and mm-hmm. not everything always, you know. So this whole labeling of, for lack of a better term, labeling of, you know failure versus success is just, you know, for lack of a better term, asinine, right? Everybody has their own set of skills, their own set of level, and they contribute in different ways to society. You, know, you don't have to say that, oh my gosh, because you do this, you're a bad person. And because you do that, you're a bad person. It's just, this is, you know, we got lots of moving parts. You know, we need people who create software. We need people who, you know, teach. We need people to pick up the garbage. And this is, we're all just together here, right? Yes. So this whole kind of success versus failure binary um, which is more or less the good bad binary. 
it just it, it convolutes the way how we think about things. So I'm in total agreement about that, right? Awesome. So the other point, I, the point that I wanted to try and get across is um, a much more fundamental thought, right? Because if we talk about the good and the bad, we have to actually start thinking about what is good and what is bad. Why do we – everyone likes to think that they're good. That's just a natural thing. The question is, what you are not, is that bad? Or is it just simply different? Mm-hmm. You know, when you start creating these silos of what's good and what's bad, we get into this complicated you know, psychological behavior that you know, kind of limits us in trying to understand the totality of, of just human existence, right? So, Absolutely. So, so when we go to a different spot now, and we basically say, and not to be jumping all over the place, but we go to a different spot, and we talk about morals and ethics and humanity, right? Mm-hmm. What is good is socially acceptable, and in a way, we kind of all believe that everyone, regardless of what age, we come to the table and we are able to say, I think we as society collectively understand what is moral and ethical and human. Right? That, do, we, do we kill other people? Do we feel as if we should get our own way? We should, all of these things, they're sort of like ingrained in us or supposed to be ingrained in us at a very holistic level, regardless of what age you are. I, so when you're I talking about it. this little topic of mm-hmm. racism, then you're getting into this whole nebulous world of it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm a racist. I believe that white people are better than black people or, or other non-white people. And then you're like, so where is this lesson that you were supposed to learn from before Montessori school <laughs> of humanity and morals and ethics? Sure. Where, where, did you miss we, that class completely? Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that context, Andrew. We have a few other callers and the, the, the time left in the show is winding down. So I want to let them get in. Um, but I, I appreciate that context. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate the thing you brought up about the good, bad binary. And, the, you know, I spoke to that at some point in the past where I talked about um, on a video I did about the whole superhero theory. And we kind of grow up thinking that there's good guys and bad guys in society. And, and it's so much more complex than that. Um, in terms of, you know, just the world, there's so many complexities, you know, some people, you know, excuse me, some people believe that drug dealers are, are just bad people, just the idea of selling drugs is bad, right? But they don't think about the, and they think of them as bad and criminals. I just heard a story the other day about a kid whose mother was a, a guy whose mother was a crackhead, and she had him delivering her drugs to her at the age of seven with a neighborhood drug dealer. By the age of eight, nine, he was selling drugs just out of habit. He was born into it. His Mom was fostering this habit as a kid before he ever knew what he was doing. And then he ended up doing it because he was ended up being out on his own and having to fend for himself. And now this is a way he can make money before he could ever get a job. So is this kid bad or is he in survival mode? I mean, it's just so it's, it's, we live in a complex world. So, yes, thank you for bringing that to the forefront. I want to go to the next caller. Um, last four digits, 6150. Thanks for holding. Please state your name and where you're calling in from and ask your question or share your perspective. Hi, my name is Osvaldo Gaetan. Uh, I haven't called in a long time, Scott, uh, but I like the subject that I saw and I had to, happen to have some free time. Uh, Thank you. I'm calling from El Paso, Texas. 
Um, and I want to applaud uh, the effort that you're making to try to meet people in the middle. Uh, I think you, the thing that I would like to point out is that I think too many people personalize a systemic issue. I'm right there with you that this is a systems issue, and the only way we're going to make progress uh, towards a common goal of not basing the value of somebody's character based on their skin color and try to get a more fair society where everybody gets a fair shot is by getting people to get away from that personalization and defining yourself by these systemic systems. People as individuals are prejudiced. They can choose to or not choose to participate in racism and declare themselves, but that individual has lots of power. The only thing he can be is prejudiced. And if we can get away from personalizing these terms and saying, and defining people by, let's say, white privilege. People can benefit from white privilege uh, with knowingly or unknowingly, and but that does not make them privileged. So it's that labeling thing I think we have to get away from. It. We could get everybody to concentrate on the systemic issues like you're trying to versus the individual in the system. Then we could get a lot more people to agree and not be so defensive about the actual, just like John did when he read the article, and said, I agree with most of these points, but all he concentrated on was that term and personalized it. I appreciate, I appreciate those comments. Uh, Dr. Oz, as I like to call you, I appreciate you calling in and sharing that perspective. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I want to say um, that you just brought to the light in, in terms of my school example that I wanted to bring up in terms of, you know, what I try to help people do is see that uh, the system design of a system uh, is the problem. The way that systems are designed is the problem. And one of the, the examples from the school example I gave is that, again, millions of Americans, literally 30% of all Americans drop out of school every year, all Americans. And then in low-income, impoverished ethnic minority communities, it's from 50 to 70% in some instances of, of kids who drop out of school, drop out of high school. Think about that for a second. 50% in some low-income African-American communities drop out of high school, and upwards of 70% in Native American uh, communities because, excuse me, because poverty and systemic racism has historically impacted these two groups um, the most, up to 70% of them drop out of high school. And we all know what happens to people who, generally speaking, when they drop out of high school. Yeah, there, there are exceptions, but a lot of them end up being on that poor and working class space, and a lot of them end up going into, you know, substance abuse or, or crime. If you go into a prison, you'll find that a lot of prisoners, an overwhelming majority of them, are, are dropouts. So here's the deal. This is what I'm trying to get everyone to understand. And this is something I learned. So let me just say this. I'm not like some person who just figured this stuff out. No, I, I learned this through a lot of research. My dissertation for my doctorate degree was on the dropout epidemic in America. Okay? So this is why I understand these things at a deeper level, not just the surface. But the only reason why we have high school dropouts is because that was because the idea that someone can fail was designed into the system. A group of people created a system of education. They made it standard. And it was designed in a way that people can fail. Think about that for a second. It was designed in a way that people can fail. Maria Montessori created a system of education where humans are learning Humans are growing. Humans, adults are out here in the world thriving, and there's literally no way they can fail. There's no way. It's, not, it's designed out of the system. So if we can design 
systemic racism, I'm sorry, I hate, not we, but if the founding fathers of this country can design systemic racism into society, what I hope is that we can come together and work through all the, 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 the indoctrinated mess and baggage that we all have and start creating something new together. People ask me that a lot. Scott, I hear you say, what do you mean when you say dialogue helps you create something that's never been created before? Through dialogue, we can create something that's never been created before. Through dialogue. You can't do that through debate. It's another reason why I don't participate in politics. There's no room for the type of success that I see is necessary and as possible in a debate-based system. There's one way or the other way. There's a right way and a wrong way. There's the Republican way. There's the Democrat way. There's the independent way. And all these various ways, and it's their way is the right way. And we push back and we argue and we fight and we make everyone else wrong. We make them failures. That creates resentment. There's no success. That's, that creates dysfunction. There's no success in any of that. When I speak to systems, that's what I'm talking about. We have another caller. 1916 is the last four digits. Please state your name, where you're calling from, and share your perspective or question. Hey, Scott. Uh, my name is Alex Lopez. I'm calling from the Cleveland area. Thanks for calling in, Alex. And so I just, I just want some clarification on, I guess, the main issue of this uh, podcast here and that uh, making, making white people comfortable or white folks comfortable, right? Right. Um, what, what I didn't really understand is why is it, uh, you know, a bad thing to try to make individuals comfortable when we're having a very uncomfortable conversation. You know what I mean? So, like, white folks are the beneficiary of the uh, – White, white supremacy system. If individuals are pushing back, is it not unreasonable to believe that they're going to you know, want to hang hold? You know what I mean? And so I guess the clarification they need is why is it viewed as a negative to want to make individuals comfortable in an uncomfortable atmosphere? And the, I guess that's supported by, uh, you know, uh, John being you know, uncomfortable with the with the the term you mentioned earlier, white supremacy and the white fragility. As soon as he got past that, you know, the the dialogue exploded. It was it was kind of surprising to me. And so, how, why is that viewed as a negative? I guess is the uh, the main question. That's a good question, uh, Alex, and I appreciate you bringing that perspective and looking at it in that way that you just articulated that. And for the listeners, uh, Alex is a member of the Race Haven Community Dialogue Group, so he's referring to the, the dialogue within the group and the thread. There's, again, it's been one of the most um, you know, active threads that we've had in the history of, of, of the group. And here's my answer uh, again. Uh, that's what I've been trying to um, bring to the light during this entire show is that, again, we've been socialized into a debate-based society, and there's a, a tenet of dialogue that I, I think speaks to what you're trying to say, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, Alex. Um, so is this. In dialogue, one searches for strengths in other positions. In debate, one searches for flaws and weaknesses in the other position. 
So what I think is happening is that what I try to model is trying to find strengths in the other position, in this case, John's position. I'm showing that I'm trying to find the strengths in his position. Why? Because that's what dialogue is all about. That's what you're saying, Alex. But what I think is some of our group members and some of our listeners and just, and, and especially in society as a whole, still not in a malicious way, but just subconsciously, because again, we've all been indoctrinated. And if you don't really work on this, you're still in debate mode. A lot of people are still in debate mode. And when you're in debate mode, if someone is an ideological opposite of you, you're instantly looking for the flaws and the weaknesses in their position. So the way I answer your question is with that tenet of dialogue, that, in di- that, that tenet that contrasts debate and saying in dialogue, one searches for strengths in the other position. In debate, one searches for the flaws and weaknesses in the other position. Do you think that that's a good tenet that kind of highlights what you were trying to say, Alex? Yeah, it does. And as soon as you, you mentioned it, it was kind of just like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Of course, they're in debate mode when we're trying mm-hmm. to dialogue. I actually, I actually just had to, uh, some, I was trying to debate uh, something completely unrelated to you know, this issue yesterday with a friend of mine. Um, yeah, he was debating and I was, I was just questioning. I trying to apply some critical thinking to his, you know, statements. And he, uh, he you know, flipped out at me, but yeah. But yeah, that kind of, that makes total sense. Well, I appreciate you uh, you calling in, and I appreciate the question. And you know, to to bring it home uh, before closing out the show, um, I hope that you know I've been able to articulate effectively, you know, my answer. And obviously, it was complex, but the reality is these are complex issues, so they require complex answers. But as I address the criticism that I cater in quote unquote, white people comfortable. You know, I hope that, you know, I was able to explain, you know, what I, the reason why I'm comfortable in coming to the table with my ideological opposites, the reason why I'm eager to come to the table with my ideological opposites. And when I come to the table, the gloves are off. I'm not coming to debate. I'm not coming to beat them upside the head with my beliefs and tell them why I'm right. I'm coming to the table to listen to them and to ask questions to get to the underlying thoughts and concerns and fears about why they think the way they think. And then I'm going to share mine. And then respectfully, based on some of the research I've done and just some of the things I've lived, I'm going to share my perspective. And then that person will do the same. And then through this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth over time, because we both want the same thing, we begin to create something new. We begin to shed the baggage of traditional education, the traditional model, and we go out and we create a Montessori model, something completely new, something completely different, something where no one can fail, but yet everyone's still learning. Isn't that a novel idea? That's what's possible. You know, that's what's possible if we just think outside the box, as you hear people say all the time. So... It's hard, it's uncomfortable, because that's what's the norm. That's the norm all around us. It's hard to go against the norm. It feels lonely. But the more you learn in these spaces, the more comfortable you feel. And you'll realize, hold on, there's a lot of people over here in these alternative, what's called alternative spaces, outside the box, alternative schools, alternative ways of thinking, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of people over there, and I agree with these people, and they are good people, and they want to make things happen. Buck Mr. Fuller has a quote 
that I love sharing, and it's this. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. I'm over there with the people, and I'm looking for people that want to build a new model. Race Haven is a conversation, it's a dialogue towards creating new language so that we can build a new model. I don't know how that's going to look, but I hope that these conversations, we can begin to work towards that. Build a new model that makes the, the existing model obsolete. So, again, my agenda is one nation indivisible. What that says to you, that's the agenda. One nation indivisible, and I believe it's possible. And that's what we're going to continue to work towards. So I appreciate everyone uh, for calling in today. That's our time for today. I appreciate those of you who've listened to today's show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for calling in. Thank you to everyone who invests time in this race haven work. Thank you to everyone who's engaging in this work, engaging, trying to figure out how to come together and how to reject polarization that we've been indoctrinated and in, 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 it's a part of our social construct that man created. Literally a group of men created the divisiveness that we see playing out every single day. And it, value, it benefits certain people to continue to perpetuate that. But as a whole society, I think if we are all just innately thinking about it, far too many people are being hurt by it. So I'm hoping that we can all reclaim our intuition reject to traditional models, reject what I like to call the ghosts who created this stuff years and years ago, and think in our, our minds of today, those of us who are alive today, take ownership today and realize the same way they came together many years ago. We can come together. We can create a new model. We can create a new system together. Be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven podcast on iPhone podcast app, Stitcher radio app for Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review. Also, visit racehavenpodcast.com and click become a patron if you want to support the ongoing uh, improvement of this show. Please uh, become a patron. And thank you to all the patrons who support the show. And we want to hear from you. You can email us at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. Join us on Facebook at the Race Haven Podcast Facebook page or the Race Haven Community Dialogue Group and tell a friend about Race Haven today. A Race Haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Love y'all. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.